On today's episode of Doctors Who Create, our guest is Dr. Mimi Winsberg, a Harvard and Stanford trained psychiatrist. While serving as resident psychiatrist at Facebook, she co-founded the behavioral health startup Brightside Health. Most recently, Dr. Winsberg released her first book titled Speaking in Thumbs, a psychiatrist decodes your relationship text so you don't have to. Her work has been featured in GQ, Bloomberg, Business Week, and Business Insider. Welcome to the pod, Dr. Winsberg. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So you've been at this really interesting intersection of psychiatry and tech for a lot of your career, and now that sort of organically evolved into insights about texting and other digital platforms. Can you tell us more about what led you to write Speaking in Thumbs? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, um, I've been a psychiatrist for so many years now, more the years than I care to admit. And um, and I got into the digital health space around 2014. And one of the things that we look at in digital health is the signal that we can get from people's communications, their text messages, for instance. Can we tell from a person's text messages whether they're depressed or even suicidal? And so there's been quite a bit of work that's been done on this and implemented by various companies in, um, in, in a lightweight fashion. And so I was, I was interested in this subject. And then um, uh, along with that, as you mentioned, I also was serving as the onsite psychiatrist at, at Facebook. And what I found there is that even though I was treating, you know, these digital innovators, the digerati, if you will, that they still were confused by text messages they were receiving. And sometimes in sessions, um, a patient would just, you know, wasn't uncommon for a patient to hand me a smartphone and say, what does this text mean? And how do you think I should reply to this? And so it got me thinking that the texting is really a relatively novel language. We've only been texting since 2007. And yet, it's become in many ways the predominant way in which we communicate, particularly in our romantic lives. Along with all this, there was kind of a collision of my personal and professional lives where my marriage ended uh, just before I took the job at the Facebook clinic. And uh, I found myself in online dating, you know, texting with people. And I sort of joked that I could, you know, recognize somebody's personality traits or even psychiatric illness in, in less than 20 texts. And, and I thought, well, there has to be a book in this. And so I wrote it. Um, what I really hoped to do with the book was to give people a little bit of a guide to digital communication. So taking the anxiety out of text messaging, if you would. Yeah, amazing. And that's such an interesting background that you've had. I was curious, serving as resident psychiatrist for employees at Facebook, what was it like working with such a niche social group of people who are ostensibly the experts in digital communication and tech? It was a great experience just because, you know, I got to work with very smart, driven people. I think it was interesting on a couple of fronts. The first way in which I mentioned that despite being digital innovators, I think it was notable that that communication can still be a friction point in our lives and that digital communication, we haven't fully made the leap to that, even though it's the primary way in which we're communicating both at work and in our, in our love lives. So that's interesting. I think the other interesting thing about working there is that sometimes I found myself treating a crisis of conscience, if you will, you know, and I think we've all seen um, a fair bit of that in the media, but, you know, I think it is a, it is a challenging place for people to work on so many fronts, um, demanding, but then also difficult when you have to ask yourself hard questions on a daily basis. 
Absolutely. And prior to writing this book, when you were just practicing in clinical settings as a psychiatrist, did you always seek to find creative outlets or was this book kind of a surprise to you? I had done a fair bit of short form writing. So I had written um, columns, uh, blogs, and, you know, I tend to write about what I know. So I've written about endurance exercise. I'm a big athlete, um, have done a lot of long course triathlon racing. And so I had written a fair bit of short form pieces. This was a first attempt at anything of this magnitude, uh, I guess, of is creativity a coping skill is being a doctor. And I think one of the things I've realized is that I do well with competition, with collaboration and with creativity. Those are the three things that sort of bring out the best in me, you know, and that um, I get my best performances when there's some competition involved and that I love collaborating with people and that's where I do my best work and that creativity is in many ways. I think at heart, creativity is connecting ideas from disparate fields and that is very rejuvenating for me and, and tends to give me more energy. Um, so it, 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 it's a way to recharge my batteries. I'm not sure I could have written a book if we hadn't had a pandemic. I, I wrote the book in 2020 and it, um, it was the perfect time to write a book because there was nothing else to do. So <laughs> I Friday, my Friday evenings, you know, writing instead of going out. <laughs> so also in your book, you actually included your own screenshots of personal text exchanges. Can you speak to how vulnerability in the right context and actually lend to your credibility as a professional giving advice. That's a great point. And we, we could have a very long conversation about that. I think we're trained as psychiatrists to be um, not very revealing about our personal lives with our patients. The thought is that one, that that could get in their way. And I think the other thought behind it is just that, honestly, I've encountered a lot of psychiatrists that just feel self-conscious about people knowing very much about their personal lives, maybe because it's do as I say, not as I do. You know what I mean? Maybe there's some of that going on in there. But I've always felt in my professional career that some amount of sharing of experience is helpful, both from an empathy, compassion point of view. You know, I've been there. I understand. And to... Um, from a teaching point of view, you know, that that part of what we do in psychiatry is talk about life and teach about life. And you get better at that when you've lived a little bit. And so I think I've gotten um, more comfortable being vulnerable over the years with with patients, you know, not in an egregious way, but I'm a flawed human, just like everybody else. And I don't I don't have a problem kind of putting that out there. You know, I think we all we all struggle with we're all human. We all struggle with similar things. And, and there's something um, to be celebrated in that, you know, not, not to be ashamed of. Absolutely. You have skin in the game and you've been there. You have that personal experience. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think is really special about your book is that it empowers the reader to sort of look back at their own text archives and understand the inflection points of relationship. How can we do this productively and avoid the pitfalls of just pouring over what went wrong, especially if the relationship is beyond repair? How can we take these lessons and just move forward? I think that's an interesting question because um, certainly there's the potential to, to obsess. And, um, you know, that is not the intention that I um, 
that I write with in the book. So just to kind of broaden what you said in my, in the book, speaking in thumbs, what I do is I make the point that our text messages are in fact, an electronic medical record of our relationships, you know, that they, they follow um, the course of our relationship and we can see communication patterns between ourselves and our, our, our partners and even um, see where things might have gone downhill or fallen apart or, or coalesced and come together. What I tell people is to give it a, a, a little bit of a rest. You know, if you've just been through a rough breakup and you feel pretty wounded, that's not necessarily the time to go on that archeologic dig and look back at old text messages. You don't wanna do this when the wound is fresh. You wanna leave some time but then later go back and see what you might learn from it. And um, I think what you can do by going back later is objectively take a look at what were the relationship dynamics and what part you may have, you, you yourself may have played in it. Because um, we tend to sort of spin stories, you know, I mean, that's, that I talk about that in the book, how our we're heuris- our brains are heuristic in nature. We're, we're storytelling machines and we, we're constantly telling our stories about ourselves and our environment and the relationships we're in. And sometimes, you know, after a breakup, this, the tendency is to tell a particular story. Maybe that's self-serving, maybe not. Maybe that's beating yourself up or maybe that's self-serving. But I think what the text thread can do is rectify that story in a way and tell it in a more objective way. And so if you were beating yourself unnecessarily, beating yourself up unnecessarily, it can be a way to see, no, actually this person wasn't very good for me and here are all of the ways. Or if you do have a particular tendency maybe that's getting the better of you in relationships, you can kind of see how that comes up in the text exchange and take a look at it. And, you know, and I suggest doing that, of course, in a self-compassionate way, you know, not to beat yourself up, but to learn and say, okay, maybe I could do things differently. You know, maybe this, maybe I am unconsciously pushing somebody away and here, here's some evidence of the ways I did that. And so that's my intention there is not to, you know, uh, pick at a, at a, at an open wound, but instead to, to, to kind of learn when that wound has scabbed over. Right. So sort of knowing yourself enough to know when is a good time to start looking at those more reflective exercises. Exactly. And, and, you know, I think we've always done this in psychiatry, you know, kind of gone over the past and helped it inform the future. But what we can do with the text messages actually have objective um, data at our disposal that that tells a story. I think, with all the pitfalls of asynchronous communication, it does offer some advantages. And of course, that was, you know, that was part of my notion in, in writing, speaking in thumbs is to say, hey, let's take care. These communications are important. This is your conversation with, you know, with your either a prospective love partner or a love partner. Think about both what you can learn from them from the text messages, but also how you want to present yourself too. And um, and it's not to say don't be authentic, absolutely be authentic, but we can be authentic and still mindful of the way we're expressing things. Especially with uh, text messages and now the rise of social media, we've all sort of been given these platforms, whether we should have them or not. So it's almost like everybody has a personal brand and it's really in our best interest to get good at using text messages and digital language to best represent ourselves. So in the book, you give people the tools to reduce the anxiety of communicating. 
authentically, but also incisively. Can you speak to how we can find the balance in this? I think it's this notion of writing authentically, but editing often. <laughs> so um, I try in the book to talk about what are some of the good practices of communication. And they're not rocket science here. We're talking about things like trust, empathy, respect, you know, attunement. And I think that there, there are ways to put those practices into place over text in the same way that a relationship coach might teach you how to do that in person with your partner. And so the book is actually divided into three sections. The first section is really about sort of, you know, texting with a stranger and what we can learn from that person early on. And then the second section of the book is about this notion of building uh, a courtship and building trust and attunement in a relationship. And then the third section is about looking back at our communications and our partner and seeing where we can see inflection points. But, you know, to your point about authenticity, yes, I think it's so important to be authentic, but we can do so in a, in a mindful way and um, still make sure that we're, you know, actively listening to what the other person is saying and thinking about, okay, what is my partner's, um, in the same way we think about love languages in, in person, what is my partner's text love language? And, you know, how can I match that? How can I talk to them in a way that they, that they will understand me and, um, and optimize our, our experience together? So I, I do describe in the book the five love languages of text and, and um, kind of made them, yeah, I mean, I made them up. So they're, it's not that so much that they're scientifically based, but I do think that we have our own styles in texting and sometimes compatibility is important that way. Could you share some of those five love languages that you had to find in your book? Yeah, yeah, sure. I tried to sort of make them analogous to Gary Chapman's five love languages. Um, so compliments can certainly take place over, over text and those would be the words of affirmation equivalent. But one of the languages that I describe is what I call riffing, which is just taking time to banter with somebody over text about not particularly anything at all. It's not like you have to be discussing a subject. You're just taking time. It's, it's the equivalent of quality time where you're just um, tuning out other things in order to have some back and forth with your partner. And some people quite like that. And I think it can be a, a, a nice way to connect. You know, other people are more in favor of what I call spoon feeding, which might be updates through the day where you're sharing a photo of what you're doing or, you know, a, a sharing some experience that you're having. Another love language is what I call nudging, which is where you might be reminding your partner to, you know, checking in with them or reminding them about something that they need to do. So all of these are ways of connecting when we're not in person together. And I think they do form an important backdrop of our, our, our relationships these days. You know, not all of it is happening in person and synchronously. A large portion of it is happening this way. I think people often have the other experience too, where they meet somebody online, have a fantastic texting experience, and then they meet, meet the person and they're like, whoa, how did I think this was going to work? You know, and I just blew through some stop signs there. And, um, that's where I think speaking in thumbs can come into play because I do, I do think sometimes when you've gotten sort of too far down that 
highway of texting without establishing the in-person compatibility, it's because you haven't looked at some of the clues in the text, you know. Would you say that these five languages to some extent also apply to our non-romantic relationships, like nurturing a friendship or even not so much work relationships that might be a little too close, but non-romantic relationships that you still want to keep active through text if you don't see them a lot in person? Sure, sure. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think we all experience this with our friends too, of like, some people just give good text and some people don't, right? And some people like a lot of text and some people don't. And it's partly about figuring out, you know, what works. Um, some people love to get that daily Wordle update, right? Some people might just hate that. So, um, um, you know, I think you need to learn what your friends like and how you click over text as well as how you click in person. Speaking of communication, emojis have become more and more important these days. Can you sort of speak to the things that you explored in your book about emojis? This is based on sort of larger scale research and what, you know, of of people taking personality inventories, particularly the big five personality inventory, and then looking at their uh, digital communications. What we see overall is that extroverts use fewer emojis than introverts. So that may just be because extroverts are more comfortable relying on words. Um, not sure about the cause behind it, but in general, introverts will use more emojis. And then down to the types of emojis that people use. So extroverted, more extroverted people will tend to use the smiley face and the thumbs up emoji. Um, agreeable people will use hearts in all of their forms. So, you know, putting putting hearts in tends to be a sign that you're dealing with somebody who's attentive and agreeable. Um Agreeable people also use more question marks and use as do extroverts, a little fewer of the I pronoun. Um, people who tend towards the neurotic will use more of the kind of more dramatic facial expressions that you see, um, the, you know, loudly crying face or the one that looks like the scream. That's uh, That can be a sign that maybe you're dealing with somebody who's a bit more high strung. Oh gosh, I use those emojis a lot. <laughs> Well, I mean, look, neuroticism can serve us well. It's a it's a feature, right? I mean, it's a it's a it's a personality trait that has upside to it. How to embrace it? <laughs> so you coined the term intimacy, and you cite it as sort of this red flag or an early warning sign of someone who may have anxious or avoidant attachment styles. How can we differentiate this warning sign from someone who's maybe just really friendly or wants to connect? I think it gets down to just um, the intensity of it, you know, our appropriate boundaries in, in place and their intimacy really is intended to be really too much too soon, where there's a presumption of knowing somebody in a way that you don't yet know them. And I do think that can be a sign of uh, poor attachment style or, or let's say less secure attachment style or lack of boundaries. So pivoting here a little bit, I wanted to ask you about Brightside Health. You co-founded this company about four years ago in the efforts to increase access and affordability to mental health services. As a part of this greater movement to democratize therapy, can you tell us a bit about what has surprised you in creating this business? Sure. Well, it's worth saying this is not my first rodeo. I'd had lots of experience working in digital health prior to co-founding this company. So maybe there were fewer surprises as a result of that. Um, but like so many things in life, it's uh, 
you know, it's largely about execution and starting a business from scratch is a little like a chess game or, you know, I'd say actually more like a poker game. It, you have your known knowns and then your, your known unknowns and to succeed, um, you really can't make a lot of mistakes and you also need to have a little bit of luck too. So it's, it's tricky business. Um, and it's largely about execution. We've been so fortunate to work with just a super fantastic team at Brightside. And we, uh, we've grown so much in the last few years and are now offering care and, you know, have been offering care for some time now in all 50 States and in network with several major health plans payers. And so it's really been such a rewarding experience to be able to deliver the kind of quality care that, you know, that I can deliver individually at, at scale now and get people into care within 48 hours when they need help. Are there any unique tools that Brightside has employed to help monitor their patients or understand their states of health, their mental health, both inside and outside of the clinic? Absolutely. Um, the company was was founded on that principle. So we have people take a digital intake and collect over 100 data points on them prior to their any encounter with a, a licensed professional. And we use machine learning to look at symptom clusters. So before the provider even encounters uh, the patient, they can have a provisional diagnosis and some clinical decision support. And then longitudinally, we do a lot of asynchronous check-ins. So it's really about surfacing the right information to the doctor at the right time. Um, And that, that surfacing of information can really lead to improved clinical outcomes is what our research is showing. How do you feel about the use of AI for pattern recognition, particularly in these more subjective states where you don't necessarily have something as concrete as like a physical exam finding as your quote unquote input? Well, AI is very useful for pattern recognition. I mean, that, I think there's, a, there's one thing computers are, are good at, it is pattern recognition. And so we're not suspending any human clinical judgment here. Uh, that really the best is to marry the two where you have human clinical judgment and assessment overlaid with AI pattern recognition. And that's where I think you can get your best results. And to that point, what do you think is the future of designing a bot for empathy? Is it at all possible? And if possible, do you think it's a good thing? Mm. Well, if you define empathy in the way that I, I define empathy, which is being able to share the feelings of another, then I think by definition, a bot can't be empathic. Um, you know, bots follow a rule set to respond in what is an appropriate way that mimics human behavior. So you can teach a bot to, to language style match, for instance, which is something we as humans do naturally when we're tuning into somebody else. And this kind of programming is, of course, getting more sophisticated by the week. Uh, we're not there yet. And anybody who's interacted with a bot recently can attest that I'm, I'm not sure bots are passing the Turing test yet. Uh, the Turing test just to, is, is, you know, of course, like, can, you, w- can the bot be mis- uh, mistaken for a human? That's sort of the ultimate test, right? Um, I don't think we're there yet. I think it's a field that's that's evolving rapidly, but I, I don't think empathy itself in the way I'm defining it is so much in the cards. Um, 
I think another interesting feature of this is as humans now we're we're so plugged into you know social media and algorithms I wonder if over time humans are able to pass a Turing test is our behavior getting too algorithmic in some ways you know but I think empathy ultimately is a very human quality. It's kind of like that idea where we're morphing into human cyborgs just because our phones are constantly in our hands. It's almost exactly. Exactly. It's something to be, I think, um, mindful of. Absolutely. Pivoting to a fun hypothetical here. If you were approached by a startup company that was on the mission to design the perfect dating app, what would be your suggestions? And if this app were to translate to other types of compatibility matching, like friendships or building work relationships and teams, or even patient and psychiatrist pairings, would that look differently? Mm. I have a lot of ideas on this. Um, and I do think matching is something that's that's possible. It's, it's, it's a hard problem and you need a large data set to do it. But I think there's some potential there. I also think there's potential to coach people on how to communicate, which is, you know, partly what the book does, but could we sort of design a digital version of that? And my thought would be yes. Um, So dating apps, I think another thing that I would say is having something more experiential rather than just conversation. I think you'd learn a lot about a person by being in a challenging real life situation with them. So put them together in an escape the room or like something a- like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and before we wrap up here, what is the future of speaking in thumbs and your ventures as an author? Mm. Well, um, I've been busy with Brightside now as we grow rapidly and busy promoting the book and doing these kinds of speaking engagements. I, I think I have another book in me. Um, probably, probably not right away, but lots of, lots of ideas about what to write about. Do you think it'll be in the realm of texting and digital communication? Maybe an extension of that. Um, Maybe something a little bit different. Okay. Won't give too much away. Yeah. Well, this has been very insightful. And I think people from all different texting generations will really benefit from your work. So if our listeners want to learn more, where can they find your book and you? You can find my book in all the usual places, uh, Amazon, local bookstores, online, and um, you can find me at drwinsberg.com, drwinsberg.com is my website. I'm on Twitter as at mwinsberg. I'm on Instagram as text.whisper. So yeah, look forward to hearing from everybody. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Winsberg. Thanks so much for having me. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe tell a friend, leave a review. We would love to hear from you. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at doctorswhocreate at gmail.com. Or tweet us at doctorscreate. Or check out our website, doctorswhocreate.com, to listen to our podcast episodes and also to check out other articles and profiles of physicians who are creative. Intro music brought to you by the band Night Float.